Well, welcome to our 1030 worship service. So in case you got in case you didn't get the memo and, and are just getting here, <laughs> not, not calling you out, but uh, just welcome, welcome, welcome. We're going to be in Luke. We're going to finish up our time this morning in uh, Luke. We'll be in chapter two. And so uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll read God's word together. Let's pray. Father, your word is profitable for the building up of your saints, for the conviction of sin, for training us in righteousness, reminding us of the great inheritance that is ours in Christ. Your word is living and it is active and it is sharper than a two edged sword. That you use it and through the foolishness of a man preaching to bring forth life. And so my prayer this morning is that those who are dead will be brought to life. That those who know you and are struggling with their faith, that it will be strengthened. That for those of us who have forgotten just how good the good news of the gospel is, that we will be reminded and it would lead us to worship. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in our midst. For Jesus' sake, amen. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through 21. And this is the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the entire world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And so Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same, same region, there were shepherds out in the field who were keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, 
He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Amen. There's a Swedish scientist by the name of Alfred Nobel, or you may call him Nobel, depending on how you want to pronounce that name, but he was a Swedish scientist, inventor, and a philanthropist. And what we know him for primarily is the Nobel Peace Prize. And when he died, it was discovered in his will that he wanted a significant part of his fortunes to go towards this trust that would make awards year after year. And, and you have awards in science, awards in mathematics, but the one that is most prominent that we would know is the Nobel Peace Prize. And it is given to the person or the organization that has done the most or the best work for fraternity among the nations, the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the holding and promotion of national and international peace. And so people that we know, like Theodore Roosevelt and the Red Cross and Ralph Bunch and the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and President Barack Obama and Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama and Jimmy Carter and Al Gore and Desmond Tutu. These are some of the people that have gotten this prestigious award. It is one of the highest awards that a person or an organization can get as it relates to promoting peace. And yet, for all of the awards, for all of the strides that we seem to take at promoting peace, somehow it seems to evade us. If you turn on your news, you see of wars and rumors of wars and terrorism and violence, that in all of our advances, there, peace does seem to evade us, and yet, there is something beautiful about that longing. There's something commendable about a trust that is promoting world peace because I think that deep, deep down inside that peace is a universal value, that we long for it. Christmas tells us that it is not just something that we long for. It is something that God himself longs for. It is something that is important to the Lord. And yet, here's the thing that the wars and the warrings that we sort of see that's playing itself out vertically, if we think biblically about what's happening, happening here on a horizontal level, then it's ultimately a horizontal issue. That when a man or woman is not at peace with God, it will be virtually impossible to have peace with one another. And so Christmas says definitively and fully that God is about the business of peace, peace with himself. And there is a war that we don't talk about it a lot. You don't see the casualties on the news, but there is a war. There is a conflict that is bigger than our war or our, any war that we could get consumed in. There's a war with our maker, a war with our creator. And Christmas tells us that he wants to end it, that he is committed to ending it. And so what I want to do this morning is sort of frame our time around this idea. We, we've talked, we've looked at, we've spent four weeks. The first week we talked about longing, how the Advent season 
should cause us to sense deep longing for things to be different. The next week we looked at wonder, that when you really think about the incarnation, that it is wonderful. Last week we talked about Christmas is for faith, that for, forbid it that we long for Jesus, forbid it that we are wondered by Jesus, but it does not move us to trusting in Jesus. Today we're going to look at peace. That's the result. That when you and I trust in the Lord, the Lord speaks peace over you. His weapons are laid down. You are reconciled again to your maker. When you trust in the son. And so I want to look at four things this morning. And they're all centering around this theme of peace. The first thing is the centrality of peace. In other words, I want to show you sort of from the text that I think peace is central to the heart of the gospel. It is peace, peace between man and God. It is at the core of the gospel. And so you see it. You, I want to build up to it and then show you why I think this whole passage centers around peace. So the first thing you notice is that these, this angel, this angel of the Lord he shows up right there in verse nine. The angel of the Lord appeared to them. He's appearing to shepherds. And notice what this one angel is saying. First, he, I mean, first thing he says is fear not. This is the third time in Luke where angels show up and they're afraid. Zechariah, the angel shows up in the temple. He is afraid. When, when Mary is confronted by the angel Gabriel, she is afraid. And it is no different that when these, these are tough men, right? These are cowboys of our day. Like this is these are tough men who, who who live in the wilderness, who work with their hands, who fight off predators that this angel shows up and they're afraid. And the angel tells them, fear not. Well, why? It says, because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Well, what is the good news? For unto you is born in this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Christ, the Lord. And so that, that's the, the good news that, that the angel is announcing is that something beautiful is happening in Bethlehem. Now, here's the thing. What's at the heart of the good news? It's right there in verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. So right there. Now, now here's what I want you. Here's how I want you to think about this scene. So think about sort of your favorite movie. Right. So I'm, I'm going to throw out two and you may have more. But you, think about Rocky. Like I'm an, I'm an 80s baby. So if you remember like Sylvester Stallone and Rocky, you remember kind of the scene where he's kind of running through the town and people are starting to follow him. And then the music comes on. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Right, that, that, that score, the score for that movie alerts you and I that this is a pivotal scene. Think about the movie Jaws, right? You remember, the, it's two notes. Dun, 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 dun. But when you hear that music, right, it lets you who, I mean, you're watching this thing play out, but the score, the music is telling you that, hey, this right here is important. Think about Star Wars, right? I mean, think about all the, I mean, think about the movie and then think about the score and think about watching the movie without the score. It doesn't have the same effect. 
Notice right here what happens as soon as the one angel announces that there is good news. Notice what happens. All of a sudden, a multitude of angels, a multitude of heavenly hosts, they start singing. So you get one angel who is telling you good news, good news. And then you get to this scene right here when there is a multitude of angels who burst out singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. It is as if the soundtrack of the gospel is being played out right there and these angels come in and they're cueing you. This is an important scene right here. I know he told you that the good news is coming, but here, look right here. This is the essence of the good news. Peace. Glory to God because God is doing it. But what God is doing is bringing peace on the earth for the people with whom he is pleased. Now, this means that if, he, if they're cueing us to say peace is important, that if they're the ones who have watched the fall of man, if they're the ones who, who I mean, the Bible tells us that they, they anxiously look into the wonders of the gospel. If they're the ones who have seen God's patience and forbearance year after year and year after year and year after year, thousands of years, all of a sudden they break out in singing because they know something special is happening. All of the wrath that God has been forbearing with, all of the wrath and injustice that God has been tolerating, some beautiful things are in step right now that will show his justice and that will take away iniquity and it will fully and finally bring peace. It is central to the gospel. It is central to Christmas that this son that is being born He's coming to make peace. The second thing you see is that there's a certainty of God's peace. So it's central to the message of the gospel. And what we see next is that it is it is it's certain like God is going to himself make sure that this thing happens. And you see it. Look at verse verses one through three. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And so here's what's happening. Caesar Augustus is the emperor of Rome. He's the great nephew of Julius Caesar. He was born 63 years before Jesus was born. And so when it, by the time that Jesus was born, he was sort of at the height of his reign. And all of a sudden he decides to call a census. Now here's what's happening. He decides, and we don't know why. We don't know if, is this prideful? I mean, is he trying to see how big his territory is? Is this economically driven? Does he think that taxes aren't being given to him? And so he wants to call a census to align people with taxation. We don't know if it's greed. We don't know if he is trying to tax them more by making them come back and pay taxes. We don't know the motive. We really don't know the motive. But here's the thing. We do know that he called a census. 
And we do know that everyone who was in his territory had to return to the land from which they were born. And that's what happens, that Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth. Now, here, now, now just think about Mary. Like, like, remember what we talked about last week. First, she was in Nazareth. That's where the angel came. And then after he announced the good news, remember what she did in haste? It says she left Nazareth and went to the hill country of Judah to the home of Elizabeth and to the home of Zechariah. And then she stayed there for three months. So three months pregnant, she's two pregnant women living in the house with a man who can't talk, right? (laughs) And then John the Baptist is born and then presumably she goes back a hundred miles north, back up to Nazareth. And then four months later, this guy calls a census and says, you have to come 110 miles back down south. And she is in her last trimester. They did not have cars or trains. We're talking about walking it or riding it. A hundred miles. Last few weeks of pregnancy. That what would have looked random, what would have looked pointless, what would have looked like, man, why are we walking and riding down to Bethlehem? Now, here's a choice you have to make. Could Jesus have been born anywhere else? Could he have been born sort of in any town or city coming down from Nazareth down to Bethlehem? Could he have been born anywhere? The answer is no. That when you read what Zach read this morning from Micah, Micah tells us, listen to what Micah says. Micah 5, but you, Bethlehem, who were too little to be strong among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who will be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days, she who was in labor will give birth. 700 years, 700 years. God had already promised and prophesied that Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be born in Bethlehem. And so from the outside, it looks like, okay, this looks random. This looks, I mean, and what God is saying is no. It's not random. I'm running this show. I have promised my people that my Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. I have promised my people that he will be of the legal lineage of David. Therefore, Joseph, I know you want to divorce her, but you won't. You're fulfilling my purposes by staying. And so the Lord sends an angel in the night to convince him not to dismiss her quietly. Now, what what am I saying? I'm saying this, that the chances that this emperor knew what was happening and knew this family, that's like me knowing your family tree. There is no way in the world this Roman emperor knows anything about this family. And yet, what we see, God is working through the Roman emperor to make sure that every one of his promises are fulfilled exactly as he intended. He is invading, he is using, he is working with 
Every single thing that seems to be outside of the history of the gospel, this ruler and this census and this in, this inconvenience and her traveling up here in the third trimester, all of these things, they look to be not a part of the gospel. And yet God says, no, I'm invading all of this to make sure that my son is born in this city of this lineage. And you want to know why that matters? That means that God is that committed to peace that he will intervene and he will work through first causes, second causes, third causes, emperors, kings, rulers. Think about the life of Jesus. Herod wanted to kill him when he was born. Where did Jesus flee to? Into Egypt. Now, why would that matter? Because the Lord says, out of Egypt, I will call my son. You get it right there. So you think you're going to kill the Messiah, but you're actually fulfilling my word and my promises. Think about when Pilate and Herod hand him over to be crucified. And you know what Peter says when he's preaching in Acts? This Jesus that you crucified, that you killed, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is God Almighty using men and people Haters, I mean, you name it, God says it does not matter. I will give my people peace and you can't stop it. That means this, Christian, you have a father in heaven who so wants to give you peace. He will use whatever circumstances he can to get it to you. You might go through hardship if it means that he brings you peace. You might endure a time of poverty if it makes your soul poor and, cry, and makes you cry out for Jesus. You might be humbled and you might be caught in sin. You wanna know what God says? It all is fair game, it all is on the table. Whatever it is that you're going through in your life, your father in heaven says, you know what? I can work through that. If it, it, if it means me showing you that you need to be reconciled to your God, it is not off the table. It is certain. The third thing we see is the cost of this peace. Now, anytime there's conflict between any parties that you usually have to have a mediator, right? You have to bring someone in who understands both parties and, and that person and that person alone can reason. He knows what it's like. He knows what this person wants. He knows what this person wants. And because of that, he's a suitable mediator. That is how peacemaking works. Christmas tells us that we have a suitable peacemaker who is Jesus Christ fully God, truly man. He understands the conditions of both parties. He understands the holiness and the righteousness of God. He understands the sickness and the depravity of mankind. And what we have in Christmas is God putting forth his own mediator, the one and the only one who can bring about peace between two warring parties and it's Christ. Now, what that would mean then, that this one who 
is over here who dwells in an inapproachable light, who created all things seen and all things unseen, by through whom all things exist, that who was with God in the beginning, it necessarily means that for him to be a mediator between God and man, that this exalted one over here would have to stand over here, would have to take on flesh, that's the only way he's going to be a suitable mediator who mediates conflict from both sides is if this one, the eternal one, comes over here and takes on flesh and says, you know what? I will live right here and I will sympathize with all of their weaknesses. I will know all of their brokenness. I will feel every single thing they feel. And that's exactly what you sort of see in the text that you see the cost of God's peace is this son's utter humility that he's going to go some steps down. And so you see it in verse seven. And so when Jesus was born, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. And so when it is time for Mary to give birth, she is forced to give birth in a feeding trough where we a, a big doggy bowl, right? We would feed animals out of it. That she gives birth and lays him there because there is no room for him in the end. Now, there's two ways to interpret this, and I want to go both ways. The more traditional way to look at this text is to say that, hey, there's a census called by the emperor. And because that census called by the emperor, which is forcing everyone who lives anywhere to go back to their homeland, then what's what's happening is this that there's no room for Jesus and Mary in a hotel because it's a logistical nightmare in Bethlehem. It took them too long. They got there too late. And so they tried to go get in an inn or in a hotel and there was no room for them. That that is a plausible way to look at this. And if you did last minute Christmas shopping yesterday, right? You know what it was like. Driving down Lakeland, like it was a nightmare, right? Checking out is going to take you 30 minutes and not 15. Getting coffee is going to take you 30 minutes and not 10. That that is a logistical nightmare because we are all scrounging and scrambling, going to the same places at the same time, and we cannot hold it. That's what it would have been like in Bethlehem right here when this guy calls a census. Everyone is coming in, and so there's no room. There's no room. That's one way. But there's another way to look at this text, which I think is probably more accurate. That word right there where it says there was no room for him in the end. That is not the common word used for end in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's not the common word used for end in the book of Luke. Give you one example. In Luke chapter 10, you know the story of the Good Samaritan. What happened when the Good Samaritan found the man who had been beaten and robbed? He took the man, he bound his wounds, he took him to an inn and he paid money to the innkeeper and told the innkeeper that I will come back and I will pay you what, whatever, he, whatever debt he accumulates, I will pay you. That word that they use there, that Luke, who is the same author who wrote this, he uses inn. He uses the traditional understanding of inn right there in Luke chapter 10. He doesn't use that word here. Now. Luke does use this word right here in this text. 
he does use it later in the gospel, and it's in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, you know what happened? Jesus is about to be betrayed. And the last thing he does with his disciples is what? He eats the Passover. And so he tells his disciples, go into town and go to the man who has water and go to him and say, the master is ready to celebrate Passover with his disciples and tell the man we want the room, the upper room that we might eat together. It's a spare bedroom. And you know what? It's the exact same word that Luke uses here. Now, on the one hand, they both convey humility, right? They both. OK, he could not go to a hotel because there was no room. And so we think that he was born outside, right, in a barn or something. That's one way. And it still communicates humility. There's another way that Jesus, Mary and Joseph, they go into Bethlehem, but they stay with a relative. And the relative had already promised their house to other people. And so their guest bedroom is already taken. And so they bring them inside and she gives birth right there on the floor in the big guest room. And in their day, they kept their animals inside at night inside of their own home. It would, would have been like a basement, but it would not have been a wall separating the basement from the guest room. And so you sort of have this sunken room where the animals would come in and right there on ground level where people sat and lived, you would put the food so that overnight, overnight, the animals who were here could reach up and eat out of the feeding bowl. What we're saying is he was not born outside. He was born inside. Because the guest room in the house of Joseph's relative was already taken. And here's what it says. It, it still screams humility. But here's what it does. It tells us that Jesus is not a high maintenance guest, right? He is not like the person that comes to stay with you who's allergic to everything. <laughs> he is not like the person who's a germaphobe and you have to clean everything with bleach. He is not the type of person where, okay, you slept on these sheets last week and you're staying with us again this week. Technically, I don't have to wash them again, but if I'm kind of OCD about cleanliness, that's your skin on my sheets. I wash them. It says that Jesus will sleep on a couch. You don't have to give him a bed. He does not need waffles. He does not need pancakes. He does not need blueberry compote on his food. You give him a bologna and egg sandwich and Jesus is cool, right? That's how humble he is. He will get in exactly where he fits in. You don't have to have a super clean house for your savior to come and lay with you. You don't have to have China. You don't have to pull China out. You can serve him paper plates and he is cool, right? In other words, what Luke is saying is that this Savior, who is God Almighty, who is worth your china and who is worth your finest wine and who is worth cleaning up your house and spotless because he is God Almighty. He comes as, you know what? You don't have to do that for me. You give me what you have. And you can welcome me. Both are saying he's humble. I think the second one is more in line with what Luke might be saying in this text. 
This is the same Jesus who moves towards broken people. It's the same Jesus who eats with sinners and tax collectors. It's the same Jesus who tells his disciples that this woman who has put two coins inside of the offering has given more than anyone. It is the same Jesus who sees small things and appreciates small gestures. He is humble. And you know what? There is foreshadowing happening right here in this text. That what we're seeing about Jesus Christ is going to be indicative of his entire life. And you see it. You see it in the very next text. Look at what happened in chapter two, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, he was circumcised. He was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And so you sort of get this idea that he is humble, sleeping on a floor. And then you get this other idea eight days later. He is circumcised. Now, why does that matter? He is submitting to every single thing that the law of God requires. If you require eight day year old sons to be circumcised, circumcise me. If you required a sacrifice to be made for firstborn children, look at the next text right after this. We will make sacrifices. We have a savior, right? Who is submitting himself to every single requirement of God's law. Every one of them. It's so easy to have advocates for peace and advocates for justice who are then not peaceful, who are then unjust. But what you have in Jesus is something altogether different. Alfred Noble or Nobel Here's the, the other side of him. As much as he celebrated peace and promoted peace through this trust, you want to know what he's really known for? Dynamite. I'm not lying. He has 355 patents and what made him the most money was dynamite. He patented dynamite. That his research and his products have been used in war and mass wars. And here's the grand irony that it was not until his own brother died, his own brother died in one of his own in his own facilities. His brother died. And when the newspaper ran his obituary, they mistakenly put Alfred's name in there when it was really his brother. And the headline of the newspaper was this. The one who has caused much death is now himself dead. And rumor has it that when he saw that, he saw that, that he was sort of stricken and convicted. And then when he died, they found the trust. And he started to care about peace at the end of his life. When he was coerced and grieved into it. And what we have in Jesus is not coercion. It is not an end of life decision to be about peace. What we have in Jesus is from his very birth. He was humble. From his very birth, he was peaceable. From his very birth, he submitted to his very own laws and commandments. There is no inconsistency in this peacemaker. 
And that's why the Heidelberg Catechism, here's what it says about Jesus. He gave Jesus' humiliation is not just at the end of life. This same baby who was born here and clothed and kept inside would then be strung out on a cross and would be naked. The same baby who had parents caring for him would be right there on a cross naked. The same baby who had people coming around him wondering would be on the cross and everyone would abandon him. And what the catechism says is this, that the humiliation of Christ did not begin there. It began there. He gave up the joys of heaven. He experienced the infirmities of our nature. He knew deprivation and poverty. He endured insults and slanders and rejection and contempt. He faced temptations of the devil. He died a shameful and painful death, and he experienced the bitter anguish of soul as one accursed and forsaken by God. From the womb to the tomb, he would suffer. Why? If the epitome of sin is pride, then at the heart of salvation, it must be humility. That if, the, if death is the ultimate punishment for sin, then humiliation leading to death is the only remedy. If the essence of sin is breaking God's law, then the only one who can redeem us is the one who submits to his law. If sin has been committed by man, then man must suffer. If only God can keep God's laws, then God must become man. Do you see that it was necessary? It was absolutely necessary for the king of glory to be on a floor. The glorious one must be humble. And that's what we have at Christmas. The last thing, who are the candidates of God's peace? Look at this. This, this still blows my mind when I read it. It's the shepherds, right? Like, look at the text. Like, and in the region where the shepherds were out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is the Christ the Lord. And so here's the thing. I think we tend to two things. One, we look at shepherds and we sort of dignify that because the Lord is my shepherd. But in their day, they were filthy. And in their day, their word didn't stand in court. And in their day, they broke the Sabbath. And in their day, there were so many things they were accused of that I can't talk about it right here, right? They're not likable people. They're not in the inner strata of society. It says they were out in the field, not with common people. They were out there doing their own things. And yet it is to them. It is to them that the angel announces the good news so much so that I think we miss we overlook that. But we also overlook this. And it's, it, it's so easy to do. We overlook this reality that when you read this passage. The way that it's written. The angel is talking directly to them. 
Now we're in it. We're in it because he says, uh, let me read it the way that I think it needs to be read. And in the same region, there were shepherds out on the field, keeping watch over their flock at night. And the, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Do you see the difference? You see what's happening. He says, I, I, the angel of the Lord, I bring you, you dirty, filthy shepherds. I bring you all good news for unto you all. He's not talking about everybody else. His first audience is the shepherds. I bring, and in the Greek, it's, it's y'all, <laughs> right? It's y'all. And so he's, his first audience is the shepherds. Now, it, it includes us because look at what it says in verse in verse 10. Fear not, I bring you all, you all shepherds, good news of great joy. Now, look at what it says next. That will be for all people. But first and foremost, I'm bringing good news to you and I'm bringing it. You're out in the field. We're invading your life. You're out tending the sheep. I'm preaching good news to you. You're broken. You're dirty. You're not acceptable in the court of law. I'm bringing good news to you. Now, it's going to be for everybody else, but it's to you. You see the difference? Now, why in the world would the angels sovereignly start there? Why would he go and make the first hearers of the good news shepherds who are not in the city, who are not in the church? They're in the field. They hear the good news out there in the field first. Because here is what Christmas says to you. You are not beyond the peace of God. Your sinfulness, your filthiness, your lack of faith, your previous sins, what you thought about this morning, what you did last night, your history of rebellion, what this says to you and to you and I year in and year out is the Lord is in the business of going out amongst unclean people and preaching peace and good news. And so. I don't know where you are this morning. But Christmas says it doesn't matter. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is peace for you. Now, I'm going to close. So that was my last point. So I'm going to close with this. How do you respond to this peace? Three ways. The first thing, welcome it. Believe the gospel and preach the gospel to yourself day in and day out that Jesus Christ has made peace between me and my God and I have access to him and he loves me and he delights in me and he cares for me. Preach that to yourself day in and day out. Your father 
speaks peace over you. Let not your conscience trouble you. It's a good place for conviction. But repent and believe that your father speaks peace over you. Welcome that. The second thing, be a witness to it. Be a witness. And what I mean by this is talk about the peace that you have. That's exactly what these shepherds did, that they hear and they are announced that there is peace, that it's available through this son. And do you know what they did? They says, let us go and check out this thing that we have heard. And then they left from the field and went into Bethlehem and they preached the gospel so much so that everyone who heard them wondered. They wondered that through the foolishness of those men in the field telling them about this son who will bring peace, that everybody right there they wondered and Mary heard it and she hid those things in her heart and she treasured it but here's the thing they were the first preachers of good news and it wasn't a dude in a suit and a bow tie who put on some cologne and tried to look nice on Christmas Day the first preachers of the good news shepherds you sprayed air freshener in your house when they left and then it says they went back to work. They went back to the field to work, to tend to sheep. They went back to work preaching the good news. That's what it means. Receive it, welcome it, talk about it. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be up here in a pulpit. Whatever you do, wherever you go, witness, witness, witness. The last thing is worship. And that's exactly what you see them doing. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and all that they had seen exactly as it had been told to them. That's why we worship right here on Christmas Day. This is a necessary response. It would be good to stay in the house and to open gifts and to be with the people we love. But if we understand Christmas rightly, it calls us to worship the one who has brought us peace. And so we're gonna gather and we're gonna sing and we're gonna smile and we're